this is Change Agents, a series about change and the people who make it happen. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today, how one state radically downsized local government. I wanted them to be a sphere of government, not a tier of government. And I wanted them to lift their standards up to the state and federal level of the way they did business. Even if you persuade the majority, a noisy minority will still impede change unless you have strong leadership at the state government level with no white anting occurring. Forcing local councils to amalgamate is hard work. State governments that try often fail, and those that do succeed often do so at great political cost. The most radical example of forced council amalgamations was in Victoria in the 1990s, when the Kennett government cut the state's 210 councils to just 79. Today we're going to tell that story. But we're going to do it with a twist, because what many people don't know is that a decade earlier, in the 1980s, John Cain's Labor government tried and failed to do exactly the same thing. The people who led those separate attempts have never spoken publicly together about what it took to reform local government. That is until now. Stuart Morris QC ran Premier John Cain's Local Government Commission And Leonie Hemingway, or Leonie Burke as she was then called, led Jeff Kennett's local government board. As you'll hear, Stuart Morris comprehensively failed, and Leonie Hemingway eventually succeeded. In the process, they learnt an awful lot about change. Or as they put it... I like to look at it as Stuart started the ball rolling, actually, and got the community to start realising this was a real issue. Well, I suppose I look at it on the basis that I was given the test car to drive around the racing track. By driving it fast and furious, I improved the model, but eventually I crashed it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you both started in local government. You were a councillor up in Sherbrooke, up in the Dandenongs up near Melbourne, and Leonie, you were a councillor in the inner city council, the small council of Paran. Yes, that's right, and also on the MAV and a number of their committees and vice president of the MAV, which is the Municipal Association of Victoria. Stuart, I wanted to ask you, what did you learn about local government by being in it, which led you to the view that it needed reform? Well, I think the first thing I learned is that local government is an extremely effective level of government. And uh, it's effective because it has the closest contact with uh, the communities that it serves and it's effective because it's uh, incredibly open, and it's effective because it's very responsive. But despite those positives, too often it was becoming a mere cipher for state government to implement some state government project, or it simply didn't have the resources to properly fulfil the valuable role that I thought it could play. So my experience was more positive about what local government could do, the negative, but uh, I felt it taught me that by empowering it and giving it greater strength, we'd actually get better governance. 
Was it efficient as a form of government? Did it need reform to make it more efficient, Leonie? Well, look, I'd agree with that, all of the, what Stuart said, but what the problem for me was we had that recession about 89-91 and you started to see all the weaknesses of the system of local government. Technology was changing at a rapid rate. We had a whole new environmental impact on the community with recycling and a whole lot of other things as well as the efficiency of of the system was very, very weak. And there wasn't even one system of finance so it was the same in each municipality. Everything was different. Everything they did was done differently. So you couldn't manage it. And in those that time, we could see great leaps in the way companies and governments were managed. And there wasn't a possible um, way of doing that without being able to, to measure well, the system. In, at this time, there were 210 councils in Victoria, in some parts of the the state, an incredible concentration of councils, 21 in inner Melbourne, servicing just 880,000 people. Stuart, too many councils? Of course. I actually thought the problem was worse in our regional centres. In Geelong, we had 11 councils in that area. In Ballarat, we had six. In Bendigo, we had five. And It wasn't just a case of the uh, small size of some councils, but I thought a more serious problem was that true communities, people who uh, live together in their local lives, were actually being separated. And this was creating all sorts of problems, not only in terms of efficiency, but also in terms of equity and in terms of having a council that spoke for that community. So... I think we can focus too much on the number because often what's more important is uh, how the councils are actually uh, organised within an area and whether those councils can truly speak for and deliver to their community. Do you agree with that, Leonie? Yes, very much so. And I think that that was the big issue for us, not to worry so much about the lines on the map, but much more about how they functioned within those lines. And one of the big issues you could have said in the number of councils was somewhere like Wangaratta, where you could throw a stone from the Shire to the city office. That was the division that um, that Stuart's talking about, which seemed very silly. Well, in both cases, they became causes that the governments of the day took on. In your case, John Cain took this on in the early 80s or the mid-80s, Jeff Kennett in the early 90s. To what extent was it led by government or had there been some movement from the ground up to initiate change and reform in local government? Well, I think all these things are iterative. In the case of the reforms that I led, the roots really were put in place by the uh, Hamer government when it appointed the Baines Commission of Inquiry in the 1970s. Then when there were changes of minister for local government that was put on the shelf to gather dust and then it was revived by uh, Russell Badham in particular who was a a staffer in the uh, Labor government in the early 1980s and eventually it got a life of its own and uh, I, I don't think that any politician was particularly strong about it. See the Premier at the time, John Cain, he wasn't a local government person and he saw it 
very much in terms of just becoming more efficient. That was his driving influence. Personally, I thought that was only part of it, indeed a small part of it. To me, the driving force had to be to uh, recondition local government so it could be more powerful in delivering governance in a sphere which would be more respectful of communities, better engage with communities and delivering government uh, in a more efficient way. What about with Jeff Kenner? Because the funny thing about him was that he was on the hustings with opponents of amalgamations in the 80s, getting political mileage out of standing against these amalgamations, and then in the 90s finds himself as Premier. Some of the reforms that he implemented or that he pushed for seemed more ideological than just about efficiency. Well, I think he was pro- probably the same as um, John Cain in the, in the first instance. He wasn't a local government person and he saw that um, they needed to become more efficient and effective as a level of, of government. But, but, but Roger Hellam, the minister, had a very different attitude. He'd been a councillor and he saw the need for amalgamation and on an entirely different level. He saw the efficiencies as an accountant and how important that was, but he also wanted people to respect it. He wanted people to feel that if they were at a dinner party or something and they said for local government, they worked for local government, that they felt proud. And at that stage, they didn't. It was a bit of a joke, was it, to be a councillor? It was an embarrassment to be a, um, a an officer or something at local government at that time because it was made more fun of. And I, and I think I've got exactly the same attitude as Stuart. I wanted them to be a sphere of government, not a tier of government, and I wanted them to, to lift their standards up to the state and federal level of the way they did business and to serve the community rather than just be an organisation. Well, Stuart, you became head of the Local Government Commission. This was the body that the Kane government set up to enable these changes. And you said when you took on the role, I'm not interested in failure. Hence, I'm not prepared to accept this position unless there is a strong political commitment to reform. Now, what you were signalling right up front there was that you thought this was going to be a shit fight. Well, I did anticipate that. See, you've got to remember that after the Baines report was... uh published, the Municipal Association of Victoria sought to promote discussion on this by holding eight seminars throughout Victoria. And there were two main speakers, and I was the speaker in favour of reform. And the speaker they had against reform was uh, an academic from Canberra called Mike Jones, who was a very colourful personality, a polemicist, mm-hmm. um, very loose with his facts, I think, but <laughs> nonetheless... Character. Uh, You'd have to say he was a. He became a. He, be, he became to me a bit like uh, someone you played tennis with every week, and you fought like fury on the court, but afterwards you enjoy a good beer together. So that was the sort of person he was. So I knew that there would be uh, a lot of contention. Now there's a second reason, and that is this: um, when you change municipal boundaries you're not only doing things like promoting efficiency and uh, a better collection of uh, communities and the like, but you're having equity effects. You see, um, there were some councils in the 1980s that bludged on other councils. Uh, They might have had a... 
the luck of a high rate base or they might have had the luck of being able to use the other council's facilities. Inevitably, the change in boundaries were going to cause some equity effects and those who were the losers were going to fight like hell. And they did. And I did anticipate that. And, uh, um, well, as it turned out, the political strength of the government um, weakened and eventually it gave up. And an influencing factor in that um, was the Labor Party areas in the inner cities where it had been the tradition to have Labor Party councillors were undermining the process from within. And so that was an important factor. You, you could have anticipated that happening. In fact, you must have, because as well as there being equity effects, you were also taking away people's personal fiefdoms and their power bases. And for many, that must have been terribly troubling. That's true, and that's why, in hindsight, uh, to put in place uh, new councils quickly would have been politically advantageous. And the reason for that is that once you create a new political paradigm, new fiefdoms develop. There are new power structures which then people want to defend. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the deficiencies in the process that I led was that we actually uh, played too much attention to providing people with options and seeking uh, to have full consultation and that worked against us because it just gave time for those who were opposed to organise and uh, get their act together. OK, let's deal with a couple of those issues. Leonie, you were watching all of this as a councillor at Paran while Stuart's taking on the world and being clobbered by people who don't want reform. Mm. What were you learning from what was going on? Well, I was learning a number of things. First of all, you can't take on 210 councils at one time. And secondly, it's not about the boundaries. It's about a reform of the system of local government. So consequently, the municipalities couldn't be one council taking over another. It had to be a new municipality altogether. How do you make that happen? Because the natural uh, proclivity of people when they see their power bases eroding is to fear that they are being taken over, particularly the smaller councils. Yes, and that's why you called them another council name. And you, so in many, there were a few cases where they hardly were altered, so you left that name. But you can't say, for example, put five councils in Bendigo together and then call it just Bendigo. We had to work with them with a grand, brand new name. We called it the Greater which included all of those. But basically, it was all about, uh, you're taking over my territory. So we had to even that up a bit and say, well, it's not your territory. It's actually the future's territory. And we had to look at a whole new name and um, boundary. Stuart, you were saying there that you had to consult and that you, uh, as a result, were kind of hamstrung because of that. But the structure of the Local Government Commission and the Local Government Act at the time didn't give you a lot of option, did it, about the way you went about consulting with people? Well, it, it, it could have been done with less consultation because the Act really only required formal hearings, uh, which of course is a type of consultation, but we had an informal process that preceded those formal hearings that in effect gave opponents another six months to organise. But I suppose one of the reasons we proceeded 
as we did was because change is not just about the end result. It's also about how you do it. And the vision I had as to how we did it was one where um, persuasion was very high, uh, was one where uh, openness and consultation were also high priorities. And uh, sometimes by having lofty goals as to how you go about change, it comes back to bite you. But I don't know whether I would give up those lofty goals just because of that. Because when change is affected, whether it be by a particular process or by a subsequent process, by having lofty goals as to how you do it, I think it makes that change more credible and also change that you're prouder of in the long run. How do you respond to that, Leonie? Because you became head of the local government board, which was the body that Kenneth set up to enable the change. And these are kind of all motherhood in a sense, openness, transparency, consultation. How seriously did you take all that stuff? I think they're absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. Because local government's such a close community organisation, you can't hide from them. So we did an enormous amount of consultation. Uh, Actually, I had to divide the board up because there was so much consultation to go on. We also went to places and, and said to them personally, what is the thing that really gets up your nose about this? For example, in the Hamilton area, it was about the next council they take over was in massive debt and Hamilton was doing very well. So we said, well, okay, what about if we corral their debt and their rates pay off that debt and then then you can just keep going the way you go? We did that, worked beautifully. And then another municipality be something about the environment. Um, you know, it just depended. So whatever their little headache was, we worked away with them to deal with it and put it into the report. And that was following on because the consultation that Stuart did was a brilliant start but we realised that they want more than this. They want that that individual sort of argument solved. Yeah, I think that when you did your work and you did a fine job, you had the advantage of a government who had power in both houses of parliament, a government led by a very strong leader, a government who... Uh, was absolute in its commitment to affect substantial change to local government and indeed a government that was ruthless enough to actually appoint commissioners to run the system for three years uh, after the change. Well, you talk about how important it is the way it's done, but the way it was done by the Kennett government was that it took away rights to appeal these matters on boundary changes at the Supreme Court. It just said, you no longer have the right to enter into a legal proceeding on this matter. Oh, absolutely. They learnt from from the past how since the late 1800s, nothing could be changed. So they said, if this is ever going to change, we're going to have to take over. So how can you have um, respect for the process that takes away legal rights? Because under the uh, Constitution, they had the power to do that and they had the right. Now, the point is sometimes, I think in this particular case, they'd seen Stuart's, it it didn't work, and you're seeing it a bit in New South Wales at the moment with all of the legal cases against that government, that he said, if we're going to fix it, we're going to have to give it everything. So to make this more democratic, we have to be less democratic in the process. Well, that's perhaps a bit strong, um, because I think that uh, 
you could argue that a state government, being democratically elected, uh, is entitled to make decisions about a matter such as the structure of local government. And what happened in the Kennedy era is you had ruthless, almost authoritarian decisions at one level, being we're going to affect major change, but then you did have very uh, significant consultation led by Leone at another level, namely what exactly will the change achieve and what will it consist of. So I think it's a bit harsh to discredit what the Kennett government did as just the ruthless application of political power. Uh, it was at one level, but certainly not at another level. Yeah, and also there were councils at the time where staff couldn't be paid because they didn't have enough money. So we had to do something pretty drastic and um, to improve the situation. You said at the time that uh, opposing this would be futile because, I'm, I'm talking to you, Stuart, because uh, you said this when you took on the job of um, running the local government commission. You said uh, opposition would be futile, but if you wanted to get involved in the process, then that would not be a futile exercise. So in other words, if you want to affect change as it's happening, get involved in the process. Well, obviously, I was being very optimistic. <laughs> it was the right attitude, though. And it's exactly what your attitude was. Absolutely. That get involved. Be part of it. Don't, um, if you, people are going to change your system, make sure they change it the way where you think it needs the improvements. And that was a, a very large part of it. And also, getting back to the point of the way it was done, local government's a constitutional corporation. It's different to the state and federal. So, for example, the, the state really has more power than the federal, really, under the national constitution. And, of course, state has enormous power over local government. So it's a slightly different, but I think we still have to respect um, the, the democratic process. Stuart, tell us about some of your opponents and their tactics. What sort of things would they do to try and white ant the process? Well, uh, most of the opposition to the 1980 reforms was concentrated and it was concentrated in municipalities that were perceived to be the losers of change. Within those municipalities, the opposition was very strong. Uh, for example, the Goulburn Council perceived it was a loser and it led a group of councils that were opposed and it did all sorts of things. I remember a, a meeting in Eaglehawk of the Commission, uh, which happened to be on my birthday. It was the 21st of July, 1986, and uh, there was very rowdy demonstrations and I was led into the hall by about two dozen policemen to protect me. <laughs> and then they had microphones set up on the stage. There were amplifying microphones, there were our recording microphones and then the Goulburn group had their own recording microphones because they didn't trust our transcript. <laughs> and at one stage, Ron Little, who'd been haranguing the meeting and trying to disrupt it with his megaphone, he jumped up on the stage and decided to pinch the amplifying microphones. And only trouble is he got the wrong ones. He actually pinched his own recording microphones. And the man he'd employed to do his recording jumped up and challenged him and there was a confrontation on the stage. That was one of the lighter moments, but <laughs> it was actually a disaster for us because... We had to adjourn that hearing and uh, it really was, I think, the start of the end um, because over the next few months we had uh, we had a hearing for the inner city councils and that's the one where all the Port Melbourne garbos attended and protested and politically it was downhill from there. 
with strong political backing at a state government level, could you have stared that down? Could you have fought through it? Possibly. But, see, the, the politics of it was influenced by the fact that in the middle of 1986, the Labor Party throughout Australia was running poorly. It was losing elections left, right and centre in all parts of the country. It was influenced by the fact that although there was support from the Premier and the Premier and I had a good relationship, I don't think that it was ever front and centre on the government's agenda. Uh, Of course, we could have got there with strong political support, but uh, whether you have that is a part of whether you succeed in change, isn't it? And so I can't really blame the lack of strong political support because it might be said, well, if I'd done things differently, I would have had it. Leonie, one of the groups that opposed what you were doing was the St Kilda community, which called for a poll to be conducted as they could under the legislation. And they wanted to test with the community what you were doing and whether it had favour. 1,979 people voted for your reforms, a massive 15,500 voted against it, and yet their will did not prevail. Yep, that's right. Um, There were a few of those. There's one in Bendigo and one in Ballarat. And what we did was we had a look at it, a good look at that, and saw what we thought was the right answer. Was it better to just leave it as it was, or was it better to go forward? And we thought, well, they might necessarily be for it, but if we let that one go then the whole thing will be like a house of cards and it'll fall apart. And they needed a lot of reform, that whole area there, like all of those municipalities. Everybody had a little story where you could clearly see that reform was needed. And so we we decided as a board to move forward and and, um, hear what they said. And I'd have personal discussions with the mayor at the time and the mayor said, look, I'm not that anti what you're doing, but the community's obviously not thrilled about it, but, you know, I'll leave it up to you. So we we went ahead with it. The city of Port Phillip seems to have retained its uh, quirky nature. It certainly has. It's always been quirky and always will be. <laughs> but, 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 but the point is that, in hindsight, those 15,000 people really were um, just fearing change. Absolutely. And we realised that. And we had to look at it seriously, and we did, um, because we had quite a mixture of people and we were extremely independent. I mean, we got into trouble for it quite a bit about being independent, but we felt that was important and that everybody was involved, opposition as well as government. It wasn't a thing that was owned by just one government. It was owned by everybody. Fear of change. That's something that everyone who wants to bring about change has to deal with if the change is significant enough. How do you cope with it? (laughs) That's really hard. Look, uh, I think there's no one magic bullet. Um, You need leadership. You need to have a vision that you're able to sell, that you can bring along people to support you. Sometimes you need to implement the change quickly so as to create the new paradigm and get people engaged with the new paradigm. Even if it means stomping on people to do it? Possibly, yes. You need also to deal with objections. It's a a bit like a, if you do a course in uh, in selling, one of the things they teach you is how to deal with objections. Well, it's a bit like that with trying to persuade people to uh, adopt political change. So 
In the case of local government, we needed to deal with employee fears. Uh, we needed to deal with fears associated with a change in the rating base. And Leonie gave an example of how she dealt with that in Hamilton, in Western Victoria. We need to deal with fears that people are going to lose power by explaining to them that the power of local government will actually be enhanced. So there's some of the things, but there's no single magic bullet, I'm afraid, if you want to affect change. What did you find, Leonie? Well, I found, first of all, and I agree with... I think Stuart and I are on the same wavelength about this because we've been in the same field, so to speak. But what, what I found was important was to try and get to the bottom of what the fear really was. And so, in some instances, it was things like councillors had been councillors for 20 or 30 years and felt that all their work wasn't respected and, and that, that, that they'd produced a failure. So you had to get over that, all of those issues. The, the issues of staff was absolutely vital. And I'd been chair of the Indus, Industry Training Board and also the um, IR board for the MAV. So I understood the union's perspective, as well as those that weren't in the union. And the important thing was, you know, it was a whole new way of doing business, bringing in business units and all that sort of thing. So it was to try and understand where the fear was coming from and how we could fix it or deal with it. It wasn't as if, though, it was all good. I mean, some of it, as a result, is still debated. There is a sense now that local government in Victoria is much more managerial than it was and that it's fundamentally, as a result, less democratic? Well, um, is it less democratic uh, if you have um, powerful units of local government that can make real decisions about what affects people's lives? You see, it's all very well saying that things will be less democratic if you have managers making significant decisions but you've got to compare it with the situation where you've got councillors making insignificant decisions. That's the real contrast. Yes, I think the problem is the management's better and I'm thrilled that people recognise that. I'm thrilled they recognise that. But what concerns me today is the council law because if they haven't got the leadership there to, to manage those managers... Well, you, you get that weakness. Now, one of the areas that I find interesting is everybody has to have mayor every year. That's not the process. The process is to find a good leader in that council, make them mayor and get them to run the show for the four years and do the best you can to give the people and the, and the, the staff the best outcome. But everybody's, oh, it's your turn for mayor. That's not leadership. So I'm, that's the area I'm disappointed in. The managers are doing very well, it's a much higher quality, and they're covering the areas they need to cover, but I think the councillors need to lift their game. Stuart, if you were to sum up the, the greatest lessons you've learned, in other words, the biggest mistakes that you made, what would they be? Well, I'm going to answer that question indirectly. Uh, I think the greatest thing that we were able to do in the 1980s is to persuade people that change to the local government system was vital. So that's what we succeeded in. What we learnt, though, and I'm now answering your question directly, is that that's not enough. Because even if you persuade the majority, a noisy 
minority will still impede change unless you have strong leadership at the uh, state government level, unless you have the legislative provisions to implement it, uh, unless you have unity at the state government level with uh, no white anting occurring, unless you do it relatively quickly so as to establish new political paradigms that people can adopt and defend, uh, and unless you can deal with the fears that people will have. They're the things that I think that we failed to have and pay enough attention to. But I do think that at least I achieved one thing. Uh, I persuaded people that change was vital and Leonie was then able to deliver it. That's, that's absolutely right. I think that's very true. He got the ball rolling. Um, Stuart got the ball rolling. But I think in, the lesson I learnt was that you'll never keep everybody happy all of the time. So you, ju- you just have to go forward with the vision you've got and you have to treat people with respect and bring the community with you as you go. Stuart Morris, Leonie Hemingway, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Asia. Stuart Morris, QC, and Leonie Hemingway, formerly known as Leonie Burke. Change Agents is a collaboration between The Conversation and the Swinburne Leadership Institute and Swinburne University's Department of Media and Communication. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud. Producer Sam Wilson, production Heather Jarvis. I'm Andrew Dodd. Hope you can join me next time for Change Agents. Change Agents.